You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Ryan. Oh, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite. Your favorite. Yeah. Consumable psychology podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, that was like a car I was crash. messing with. <laughs> um, welcome everybody. Super excited. We are going to be talking about a super fun topic today: the Mozart effect. Yep. So, have you heard this idea that listening to classical music makes you smarter? Is that something you've heard? Yes, most definitely. At one point in my life, I tried turning it on to see if I was going to study and retain things better. <laughs> How'd that work for you? <laughs> uh, spoiler alert: didn't work. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think uh, we'll get into it, but I think that having uh, certain types of music on can distract or not distract you as much, and I think that's what I learned. That's perfectly fair. That's a great point to actually bring up later. We hope wherever you are listening that you're having a beautiful, amazing, awesome day. Yeah, so welcome to our rambling discussion about this interesting topic. This one, I think, will hopefully fall into the category of the debunking myths variety, and... Maybe a little bit of like historical research type of thing, a little bit, sort of. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive into this thing. So as Ryan said, we are talking about the Mozart effect, and the idea that essentially was proposed was that listening to classical music enhances intelligence. And most of the time, this is ha- has been pitched and sold as listening to classical music in the womb, or as an infant in particular, will enhance intelligence, which... Man, if it's that simple, then we should definitely be doing it. Right. Because that's a pretty low-cost, easy implementation type of fix that has these profound, pronounced, and long-lasting effects as being well-educated. Don't even have to go to school. You just listen to a bunch of classical music. I bet you Mozart's just rolling around his grave wishing he had the royalties from all this, too. <laughs> Wasn't he one of those guys that just like was not so... Uh, known until after you passed? I actually don't really know anything about Mozart, even though I should. Okay. So, But, you know, you can't take it with you, so he probably doesn't care that he's missing out. Maybe if he had, like, descendants <laughs> or something that could be profiting from this. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. Tangents all, and bad jokes. All, Aside, here we go. It's all good. It's all good. All right. So the the emphasis that was placed on Mozart, I think, tended to be a little bit arbitrary. It could be any classical music, and I've certainly seen Beethoven be suggested, and Bach, and any of the major classical composers of that style of music could hypothetically produce this effect. And so this is a topic that's received a lot of controversial discussion, especially because it relates to both social and parental concerns. And I mean, just looking at this as empathetically as possible, people are going to be raising their children thinking, I want the best for my kids. And yeah, so, and you will make all your decisions around that as well, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly right. So if I can simply play some music that's going to have the effect of my child is going to have a better life because I played that music, well then I'm going to buy every piece of classical music that I can find and just play it nonstop because more is better. So <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of the, the, the background on the idea of this. So... Where did this idea come from? So let's rewind to 1993. Nature published a scientific report entitled Music and Spatial Task Performance. The study, college students who listen to Mozart's Santana, Santana. 
<laughs> it's like a mix of yeah. mix of Sonata and Santana. <laughs> Santana with Rob, what's his face from Matchbox Twenty? Right, Mozart Sonata for ten minutes increased their performance on a subsequent spatial intelligence test by eight to ten IQ points compared to the control group, and this is huge because it's especially that time wasn't thought that you could move iq whatsoever right um so when you see these increases it's like holy cow no matter what you're studying so that there were uh, there were a couple of control groups one either listened to relaxation instructions and one just sat in silence for the entire 10 minutes so you just imagine that you had three different rooms or three different groups of people i'm just going to assume that they're in rooms because that's that's how i'm visualizing it and so in one room they've got this classical music playing that's specifically uh, mozart sonata and then in another room you have people listening to instructions on how to relax and then in another room you just have dead silence and probably the sound of occasional moving about and farts. So as you can imagine this initial study sparked some level of interest suggesting that you could move IQ at all and that it was done simply by listening to classical music and this did lead to further research and spoiler alert very mixed results. Um, In 1999 Chabris, or Cabris maybe, um, conducted a meta-analysis of 16 studies and came to the conclusion that the overall effect size of listening to classical music was negligible, kind of at best. Um, Rauscher in 1994 and another study in 1997 led studies showing that music training, specifically in the form of playing the um, piano keyboard um, and lessons in that, led to long-term enhancement of spatial reasoning in preschoolers. And then Rauscher and colleagues in 1998 also demonstrated that rats exposed to Mozart's music performed better in maze navigations, although these results do not bear directly on the Mozart effect, simply suggesting that or demonstrating that musical exposure may improve skills in spatial domains for some reason, which we'll hopefully get into at the very end of this. So let's dive into the the media and culture here. This is the fascinating part for me right now in my life. So the Mozart effect has not fared well as a scientific theory, but within the media, culture, and groups within the U.S., the idea has been viewed as an easy technique for enhancing intelligence. It's all over the place. Yeah, very easy to get your hands on, um, often pushed as recommendation, at least, you know, low risk if anything. Um, It has received attention in public debates, ranging from supporting funding towards arts and education to impact on early stimulation for intellectual development. And in 1998, Georgia, the state, passed a bill to distribute free classical music to new mothers. There was a figure I saw somewhere, I don't recall now, of how large this became of an industry, but I think we're talking billions of dollars annually in sales I'm not surprised. Of, of this that sprung up around this particular study. So, Someone's hanging out on a uh, beach right now laughing at this podcast because they made so much money off this stuff. I'm thinking that the authors of that initial study were in the pockets of big classical... <laughs> <laughs> big shills. Just Quite possibly. <laughs> just kidding. It's just if that's a thing, I, and somebody I, knows that for sure, let us know. I just really wanted to say that because it sounded so funny. We're gonna have some record label with an X on our back after this. <laughs> <Jeez. laughs> so pissed at us. <laughs> anyway, fo- um, following two, two unknown podcasters die because of the most recent <laughs> episode. Jeez. 
All right. Well, I died doing what I love, I guess. <laughs> so, so yeah, there was other states that adopted similar sorts of trends, putting this sort of thing into effect. Florida passed a bill which required state-funded daycares to play classical music every day. In 1998, yeah. Um, in the late 1990s, there seemed to be varying phases of interest around the Mozart effect. There were the results of those 97 studies that we mentioned earlier. Um, there was a pop psychology book that was published in 1997 by Campbell, and that specifically talked about the Mozart effect. And then there was the legislative action that we talked about with Georgia and the Florida bills, as well as other states adopting those similar um, strategies, I guess. And I wanted to take a quick sidestep just to share some other data that I found in a workshop I did uh, pretty recently. So the British Medical Journal was looking at what happens when your press releases about your scientific studies contained exaggerated advice, exaggerated causal claims, or if they had any sort of inference to humans from animal research. But essentially, contained exaggerated advice in your press releases were 40% of the releases that were going out. The exaggerated causal claims were 33%, and the contained exaggerated inference um, to humans from animal research were 36%. So all of them had, at the very least, 33% of exaggeration when we look at these different categories. But the news stories, respectively, contained similar exaggeration 58, 81, and 86% of the time. So if you include these sort of exaggerated things, they're likely to anywhere from like double to triple and the extent to which they're being written and exaggerated in those sort of news stories. So I don't know if this happened there. It's super interesting whether data in my my eyes uh, had to do with, again, medical claims as opposed to like the topic we're talking about today. But you can counter that effect when it comes to exaggerated rates in the news when the press releases were not exaggerated. You saw a dip of 17, 18, and 10%. So my thing here, the kind of take-home point is that there is a lot of value in taking your time to write those press releases and work with people because, as you can see, billion-dollar industries can shape up as a result of it. Um, on completely false, weird claims. And, and now that it's a bad thing to have like a whole industry, it's when that whole industry is around something that is not is not scientifically shown to be effective. Yeah, yeah. It's and I guess I'm, we'll get into this, but the ethical implications and moral implications there are just kind of crazy for me. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Now, around that time that that big spike in interest in the Mozart effect was occurring around the late 90s, there was also two books that were released that were debunking the um, belief in this idea of the Mozart effect. In um, 2004, Bangerter and Heath examined the Mozart effect and anxiety in early childhood. And it was also more often discussed in the United States where the quality of education may be more problematic and a concern around education might be higher. And so they're sort of a more desperate look at what we could do to change our educational practices so that it, they'll be more effective. And so anybody who shows up at their door with any amount of, I'm going to say flair, um, and, <laughs> and can sell their product, uh, the, the government or whoever is responsible for making the decisions about how money is spent on improving our education system was uh, very motivated to buy it. Um, however, those people who showed up with good evidence and data, see project follow through, uh, were unlikely to be <laughs> given any amount of credence or ability to make meaningful changes. And so they're like, let's do more of what doesn't work and less of what does. That's kind of how the world works. I distinctly remember my fourth grade teacher playing classical music 
uh, during some parts of our study sessions. I and you're a perfect example of how this does not work. Then, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Ouch! <laughs> just had shots to fired on the why we do what we do podcast. <laughs> just kidding. If you are tuning in recently, Abraham and I go back for about ten years. Yeah, uh, I appreciate the shots, man. <laughs> All right, so well, can you jump into the research a little bit more here? Yeah, I mean, essentially, there was the initial study that they did with college students. Important to note, this all started with some college students, and then they're like, oh, we should do this with babies in the womb. Why? Anyway, and even then, the effects were pretty modest. Anyway, um, so some studies have been able to more or less replicate the original findings with college students. Hetland conducted a meta-analysis in 2000, which examined 36 experiments uh, that had reported statistically significant Mozart effect, yet other studies had been unable to replicate the original findings of the Mozart effect. However, um, so most studies, whether or not they were successful, they, as I mentioned, use those college students as participants. And as far as I know, very few have actually looked at the use of of this with infants. Um, There was a study with school-aged children, which I'm not entirely sure what that might mean. I'm guessing like six to eighteen. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at this if I was like a researcher and like looking at the existing body of evidence. I'd be like, yeah, we're gonna do something else. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. like years and years of research to like dive down something that's probably just totally false, which is a whole yeah. different topic. But anyhow, yeah. Keep going. Sorry. No, it's all good. Um, so, yeah, um, McKelvey and Lowe in 2002 found no evidence for Mozart effect on seven and eight year olds. It was a small sample size, so that's worth taking, you know, sort of taking the grain of salt um, in consideration how you interpret those results. Uh, in 2006, there was a study by Ken Hui investigating the Mozart effect in preschool aged children. There were 41 boys and girls aged three to five in this study, and participants attempted a series of pencil and paper maze tests as an indication of intelligence. After each of three listening conditions, either they were listening to Mozart, to age-appropriate popular music, or silence. K-pop! (laughs) Yeah, that's probably what it was. Um, And uh, the overall results suggested no statistical difference among those three interventions with respect to solving those mazes. Also in 2006, a study conducted in Britain involved 8,000 children. Participants listened to either 10 minutes of Mozart, a discussion about the experiment, or to a sequence of three pop songs. Blur's Country House, Return to the Mac by Mark Morrison, and Stepping Stone by PJ and Duncan. I have no clue who those people are. I know who Blur is, but I don't think I've heard any of those songs. Yeah, I'm going to be looking these up and listening to them afterwards. The outcome measures were two. A 20-item paper and pencil test of spatial abilities. The second test was a paper folding. Um, This was similar to the folding and cutting tasks that have been used in previous research studies. Music improved the ability to predict paper shapes, but this time it wasn't a Mozart effect. It was a blur effect. (laughs) Those participants who listened to Mozart did well, but with pop music, they did even better. So prior uh, preferences in your learning history or your history could come into this. I wonder if Blur just started <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and if they know about this. <laughs> the multi-billion dollar Blur effect. <laughs> um, all right, so in 2013, the Mozart effect was tested in kindergarten children living in the country Jordan. Uh, 42 children participated, age 5 to 6. 21 were assigned to the experimental group. 
and were exposed to music each day during their daily school programs for a total of eight months. The control group did not experience any accompanying music. Um, a measurement tool called the Preschool and Kindergarten Children's Performance Scale, established in Jordan in 2001 by Al Bach, was used. Results from the study showed that uh, for the experimental group, there was a statistical significant difference in social, cognitive, and physical development. doesn't say in which direction, but I would assume that the direction is an increase in those things. Um, <laughs> sorry, the- sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I thought that was going to go through my headphones. <laughs> I wanted to listen to Blur's Country House. I'm so sorry. It's okay. All right. I Um, had to set up on my Bluetooth speakers. Oops. One thing I think that's useful to note in this Jordan study that was done is that they didn't they didn't set this up in a way that it could be a blinded study. And I'm very curious to know if the if the teachers were aware of the hypothesis of the study, and even if they weren't, honestly, that could certainly affect how they went about approaching their classes. So there could be a difference in the in the curriculum or the presentation of the curriculum that would be important. So Pechnig, Voracek, and Foreman in 2010 performed a meta-analysis of almost 40 studies, and they actually found that there was no evidence for um, that listening to Mozart music enhanced cognitive performance in any way. Sounds like portioning... Voracek and Foreman, by the way. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. All right. Also, uh, exposure to other musical stimuli compared to exposure to no musical stimuli yielded a significant overall effect uh, of about the same size. So it didn't necessarily depend on it being classical music. All right. So initial publications of the topic demonstrated a large effect, but eventually faded once more research was conducted on the topic. Very interesting. We've seen this in other areas. Of research Now, based on the 2010 meta-analysis, the authors pointed out possible publication bias, differences in method, which happen all the time, uh, failure of exact replications, which also, again, happens all the time, as well as large differences of effects between labs conducting the studies, which anybody new to understanding research, independent verification across different labs and different um, research groups is very important when it comes to understanding these effects, because you could have some sort of bias or some sort of unknown issues that are happening in your methods when you have it only occurring in one one research lab. So doing it in different areas, having these independent replications really strengthen the uh, understanding of what's going on. All right. So this brings us back now, Abraham, into how could this possibly work? What is going on here? One important note to bring up with respect to the original authors of that 1993 study in Nature was that they they themselves didn't actually make any claim that listening to Mozart would make people smarter. Really, they just presented their findings as listening to Mozart, the sonata in this case, temporarily improved the spatial intelligence scores of those college-age students. Um, However, this because of that media attention that grabbed hold of it, um, it has it was promoted in all of these books, this whole industry of buying toys, CDs, DVDs, all kinds of stuff that you could buy that was listening to classical music or represented classical music. And this was presented as being educational by itself. Um, and there are there a lot of follow-up studies, some that we talked about. So, that's not to say necessarily that like there's anything wrong with listening to classical music. What's problematic, I think, is that you the idea that listening to classical music is going to have this profound effect on their intelligence. And some basic suggestions that I found were singing to children um, could be a way to 
uh, have a, a, the effect of incorporating music into their lives. Um, there's a suggestion that this communicates emotional and regulatory information, and so in that way can be a vehicle for learning. That goes back to the idea of like how this sort of works. Buying instruments for your child to manipulate, obviously child-friendly instruments, probably don't give them a 50,000 Stradivarius violin or something, but one of those <laughs> little toys that makes has like eight notes on it. Um, enrolling your child in musical classes, paying for lessons, encouraging participation in musical activities. These are all things that are likely to, if you want to get the effect of what comes with knowing music and understanding music and being exposed to music, actually participating in that music is where you're going to get any amount of effect if you are looking for some. So let's actually then explain how could this possibly, like why does anybody think that this works and how could this possibly work of simply listening to classical music having the effect of promoting intelligence? Okay, so essentially the idea here, hold on, I'm, I'm going to take it even a step back further from that. Understanding how learning happens and what intelligence is. So when we walked away from the intelligence episode, essentially what we concluded is intelligence is a set of competencies in development, taking that definition straight from David Shank's 2000 book, The Genius in All of Us. And I think it's a, it's a really apt description of what intelligence is, is this idea that intelligence is skills, essentially. And they are skills that we are sort of constantly developing as we go on in life. And we develop those skills by practicing them and practicing them in the right way that they're likely to become more fluent, to generalize, to work in different circumstances for us, to be able to do them in different ways, backwards, forward, left and right, all whatever it takes. You know, we can do these skills really well. Okay, that's what intelligence is. So passively receiving auditory stimulation is not doing anything. Yeah. You do have now one thing that we talked about in our hearing episode is that one of the reasons hearing is so important can be so important. Obviously, you can have a a totally um, productive and wonderful life with without hearing. But the one of the reasons that hearing can be so important is because we get an enormous amount of information from our hearing and that generally stimulating the sensor, the senses uh, um, around hearing means that we are interacting in a way with our stimulating environment. We are processing and thinking about and reacting to those stimuli, which means we're doing something, albeit not much, right? We're sort of just passively being a part of it. That's still better than nothing. Like sitting in absolute silence can have a pronounced effect as well when we just aren't stimulating, we aren't participating in anything that really austere environment. So being engaged in something is better than doing nothing whatsoever. And if you're not really actually doing anything, all you're really doing is sort of maintaining a, a level, if you will. So this can't work. <laughs> like, there's just there's just nothing to it. And if it were to work, it doesn't matter what kind of music it is. It's just being exposed to stimulation. So yeah. by that point, really, if you have them just lo- looking at the iPad watching cartoons for 24 hours a day, probably not because they got to sleep at some point, 18 hours a day, then let's hope that they're sleeping a lot. Let's say 16 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably, they're getting a ton of stimulation. The problem with that approach which is not the purpose of this episode at all. But the problem with that approach then is that they're not getting any social stimulation. And we are very social creatures. We do a ton of our learning in social contexts. And so there's a, it's actually still fairly passive to just have stimuli being thrown at you. You really want to have it be as interactive as possible and yep. be 
responding to other people and what they're doing. There's gobs of research suggesting that that's that's a critical key component to development yes. of a human. Yes, yes, this is this is all very well understood at this point. We're not just making this up. So, this idea that you can simply sit and listen to music is going to turn you a genius. No. It is better than sitting in silence and doing absolutely nothing, but it's really not nearly as good as doing anything you yeah. know, of, of where you're actually participating in this. And I think another big take-home point here that was mentioned by Bangarter and Heath, 2004, the Mozart effect, tracking the evolution of a scientific legend in the British Journal of Social Psychology, where, uh, I don't know, take it as you want, but I think there's a pretty good correlation with the number of studies that were published suggesting that this is a thing or those bills that we talked about with Florida, Georgia, and those sort of bills that were implementing um, some sort of strategy around providing this music to people as a result of this research that was going on, increased the number of articles in the media that were talking about it. So the graph is specifically looking at the number of articles per million articles that were published. And we saw spikes in the quarters quarter of the year that is first second third fourth quarter of the year how many articles were published based on when these different studies were coming out so uh the media likes to talk about things that are supposedly out there and known and kind of cool in science but they forget to really fact check and whole lots of different things can happen that have nothing to do with the actual effectiveness of that uh just simply because the media is talking about it which, I don't know, doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's a reason that, like, dictators go for the media channels first, right? Right. <laughs> they first overthrow. Yeah, I mean, if you hear something, and there's – I've, I've thought about doing an episode on this as well, but if you hear something, you're likely to believe that thing that you hear if you hear it often enough, even if you're told that it's not true. And there's data, man, on, like, this social media <laughs> age. There's data that people – I think it was like 40 or 60% of people have been found on the upper ends of this data set. I'm taking the most drastic ones um, to retweet or reshare things without actually reading them. Yeah. I mentioned that before in a previous episode too. Yeah. It's absurd. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, that's kind of part of the reason we live in, in this era of sound bites where it's the quick one liner that is memorable in some way that's likely to live on and go, and, and be extremely well-known, at least temporarily, is that we can latch onto those things easily and because they get pushed all over the place. And so, like, it's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it's really useful to communicate effective, important information by saying it often and saying it loudly and saying it in a way that everybody can hear it so that they are able to be more productive. But the exact same effect works in the opposite direction when you have something that is incorrect, that is maybe full of rhetoric and hate, that is maybe maybe full of propaganda that make, to try and make you believe something that isn't true. So if you hear and I bring this up a lot on here because this is just the most ludicrous thing to me, but if you hear often enough that the world is flat, you might start to begin to question whether or not it's not flat. <laughs> and, and that's unfortunate because it's so demonstrably false. <laughs> like, we live on a round planet. That, it, just, it just is. Yeah. And, and then, but, like, going into things like politics, as soon as you hear that a politician has done whatever that they've done, then it becomes really hard to hear anything other than your perspective of that of that politician through that new lens that you have. 
And then the same is true for things like this with respect to psychology, that as soon as you start hearing, well, maybe classical music really does improve the intelligence of my child, then, I mean, again, it's low harm, it's low stakes, but like it, there's just, it, it doesn't. And, and if you do that to the exclusion of like talking to your kid and hanging out with your kid and like having them do stuff, then you're really doing, doing them a disservice. They're going to be much better off by having interaction with you than by having um, just music played at them. All right. Another mechanism, last one, I'm going to say, of how this might work. And this actually goes to the blur effect, I think. <laughs> this is the funniest thing. Um, <laughs> is, is how music can sort of work as a distraction and when music is sort of background noise. And so, like, I, I will do the dishes and do chores a lot if I have something to listen to that I like. Yeah. And they are so much more aversive for me if I don't have something to listen to that I like. And so part of the way that music can work is it can serve as a way to sort of just enrich an experience, right? And so it just – but that does depend on whether or not you like it. Like you try and put a music I don't like, I will be even less productive than if I'm listening to nothing at all. Yeah. No, this is a, a key to my, quote, productivity in my life. Um, I have Spotify streaming 12 hours a day and it's wow. depending <laughs> it's depending on like what I'm doing when or it's podcasts like you were talking about. Like certain things are podcasts, certain things are certain types of music. Yeah. For me, it's been um, the more I have to generally – the more I have something that I need to focus on and like create or there's some sort of process of like me writing or whatnot, I've got to drop the lyrics, especially things that I know. I can't yeah. have things that I know. Right. Or else I just want to like keep focusing on those lyrics and sing along or whatever. You know, it distracts me. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so that's just thinking about this in terms of if you have music that is of preference then that's going to have a particular effect. It might be a distraction. It also might work as a reward and be motivating. If you have uh, music that is neutral, then it can probably serve as sort of a nice background noise. Um, not going to really serve as an effective motivator, but it, it'll be there to at least better than nothing. And if you have music that you don't like, it's probably going to not serve very well as a distraction um, well, and actually, it might be a distraction, but it, it certainly is not going to be an effective motivator to get you to do something and might make something seem worse or unpleasant. But all of this has no effect whatsoever on whether or not you're likely to do well on a, in a cognitive or intelligence test, aside from the fact that you might generally be a little happier and feel a little more stimulated and excited if you just got to listen to some of your favorite songs and then you get to take this test. Yeah. You might also be more distracted, so like there's that, but um, it's it's hard to say, and that's part of the reason that the the results are so mixed, and why the studies essentially show that there is no effect because there is no effect. It just can't work. It doesn't make any sense that it could work. Like, un, in what universe would music going into your ear rearrange your brain in such a way that you could be good at skills you've never experienced or practiced? That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Agreed, like, man. We just biologically are not set up for that to be the case. It it just doesn't make any sense, and the, and the research bears that out. Maybe some matrix, uh, Elon Musk, artificial neural net intelligence sort of world that'll change, but not right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> and 
I I will I will even lay down my gauntlet and say like this just isn't ever it's never gonna work that way because it's just not how human behavior works. We learn by doing. Period. Like that's it. <laughs> uh, now. <laughs> And, you know, I will say that, like, part of doing can be things like reading and listening to, like listening to podcasts, reading books. You can learn from doing those things because you are doing them in a way. But when you do those in combination with practice, the, the effect is very, very much more pronounced. Like, if I were to listen to somebody to giving me instructions on how to do something in a different language, not going to be any better at doing that thing. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. The music, especially the classical music, which has no lyrics, it has no instructions, it has no anything, all you're getting is auditory stimulation. That is it. But that sonata, man, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. <laughs> and there's no disparaging. If you want to play classical music for your kids, go nuts. That's fine. It's low impact. Again, just don't do it to the exclusion of meaningful social interaction. You know what I mean? I think that is a great final point. Great. <laughs> I, th- I think we actually sort of hit all of our major take-homes inside of that. We did. Rant. We have to thank real quick the Brits who helped with the show notes, putting this all together, all the research. Uh, ladies, this was a fantastic set of notes. Yeah, Britt um, Bowerly, Brittany Marie DeSanti, thank you. Yes, fantastic. This podcast would not go on without the team, so thank you so much. And no I mentioned it today. No listener mail. I mentioned a few times we have started up the Patreon. So it's patreon.com backslash WWD podcast. And you can get some of the behind the scenes sort of clips, uh, full length podcasts, unedited in video format up there. So consider going out and supporting in some sort of way. And we're going to be adding some more to that. Yep. Uh, I don't know if, I don't think we mentioned at the top of this episode, but we're now on Spotify and PodSearch. So you can find us there. Um, be on the lookout for more updates about Patreon stuff. And hey, if you would like to reach out to us, please do that. We really like hearing from people, even if it's just to say, um, good job, some, so good Daps. job, Thanks. or something random, <laughs> or to tell us how wrong we were about something. We we get those emails a lot. More yeah. Than we- like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Actually, I'm, I'm just kidding. I like all all correspondence is good. Send we will take all hate mail to the same email address. Don't and worry. all love mail. Yep, love mail sounds a little weird. Um, <laughs> it's all it's all good. Go stalk Ryan on social media. He's really easy to find. Yeah, all right. Um, I think that's it. We, we, we good? Yeah, I think we're good. All right, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.
froze right here. I'm waiting to get back into the Zoom oh, meeting. Rhino is frozen. Or he's holding very still. I'm thinking frozen. Can I tell you how much I fucking hate Spectrum and their fucking internet services? F you Spectrum. Also, in 2006. <laughs> also, 2006. 